0: Well, if you got a copy of the bulletin this morning, then you notice that today we are introducing John chapter 8. Uh, one of the dangers of getting into the, the fine details of, of, of a gospel book or any book that we study and going through it so slowly is that we can start to sort of lose our appreciation for some of the overarching themes and storyline of the book that we're in. So it's good to dive in and it's good to sort of get our hands dirty with a digging for truth, but sometimes it's good to also sort of step back and remind ourselves of where we have been in the gospel, where we're going in the gospel, and the chapter divisions serve as good opportunities to do that. I don't know how you think, but I think in terms of lists and categories and and pictures. And so when I study a book, I try to find mile markers or signposts throughout the book that remind me of where the content belongs and remind me of, of how the thing is structured. And so as we go through the Gospel of John every once in a while, we need to step back and remind ourselves of some of the signposts and remind ourselves of the overarching themes. We don't want to lose sight of where the story is going and some of the some of the gems that we can pick up by just getting a bird's eye view. So today we're doing that for the Gospel of John chapter 8. We're going to sort of just do a flyby, and overview of the whole chapter and see where we're going in the next several weeks. You might ask, why do it at 8 verse 12? Because that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with 8 verse 12. The reason being is because, as we mentioned the last couple of weeks, we want to keep, or at least in my mind I keep, John seven fifty three through 8 verse 11 as a separate piece of text. Because of the questions, the issues surrounding that, we dealt with those. So now we're going in and, and starting with John 8 verse 12, which in my book would be 8 verse 1, really. So that's we're going to do an introduction. We're just going to deal with verses 12 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 59. Before we dive into the details and read through, we're going to read through the entire 8th chapter of John together and get our overview. before we do that, I want to remind you of some of the connections between chapter 7 and chapter 8. One of the connections has to do with the timing or the, the occasion of chapter 8. Chapter 7 all revolved around what? Do you remember? It was a feast. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. John chapter 8 likewise occurs around the same time as the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. So does John chapter 9, by the way, and so does a large part of John chapter 10. So all the way until about halfway through chapter 10, we're still dealing with this Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. So John chapter 8 occurs on the heels of John chapter 7 in in terms of its timing. So in John chapter 7, you remember the Pharisees uh, had that explosion at the end of chapter 7 toward Nicodemus and the temple, the chief priests. The event beginning at John chapter 8, this discourse starting at 8 verse 12, occurs right after that. Now it's either the day of or the day after, depending on whether or not that passage in the first 11 verses belongs here or not. Because if that passage, the first 11 verses, belongs here, then this tells us that 8 verse 12 is the following day. The next day, after Jesus' big invitation, where he says to the crowd and to the people, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. I am the fountain of living waters He will drink of me and never thirst again. That invitation in John 7, 37 to 38, that invitation was followed by either a night and the next day, which is 8 verses 1 to 11, or if that passage doesn't belong, then immediately after Jesus gives that invitation, at the same feast, on the last day of the feast, he also makes the proclamation 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So there's a timing connection There's also another connection, and that is that 8 verse 12 keys off of the second of two main features of the Feast of Tabernacles. you remember what the two main features were? The first one was the water-pouring ceremony. We talked about that in detail, right? Jesus alludes to that and sort of keys off of that when he makes his proclamation, I am the living water, come to me if you thirst. And he invites people, and that whole invitation is based upon the water-pouring ceremony. The second main feature of the Feast of Tabernacles was one that was not contained in Scripture, one that Moses didn't prescribe, but it was sort of a tradition that had become attached to the observation of that feast. And that was the lamp lighting ceremony, where they would light up hundreds of lamps on the outside of the temple at night and on this great feast. And so the temple itself would be lit up in the dark, and it would be this shining monument up on the Temple Mount. And everybody could see it from all of Jerusalem, for miles around, you could see the temple lit up. Jesus keys off of that in 8, verse 12, when he says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Then there is a third connection between verse chapter 7 and chapter 8. At the end of chapter 7, do you remember Nicodemus sort of cooled the Pharisees, or tried to cool the Pharisees a little bit, when he said, Look, before we kill him, don't you think we should at least hear what he has to say? Remember that at the end of chapter 7? Nicodemus just wanted a fair hearing. Give Jesus the opportunity to say, to present his case, before you kill him. Seems reasonable? Well, chapter 8 is Jesus presenting his case to the Pharisees. And one of the things that John is showing us is that before Jesus presented his case to the Pharisees, they wanted to kill him. And after Jesus presented his case to the Pharisees, guess what? They still wanted to kill him. It didn't matter whether he presented his case to them or not. They still wanted to kill him. That's what we get from John 7 and 8. At the end of chapter 7, it closes with Nicodemus saying, let him speak for himself. John chapter 8 is him speaking for himself. And John chapter 8 ends with them trying and wanting to kill him. There's one difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8, and it's this. Chapter 7 deals mostly with the interaction between Jesus and the crowd, the people. The people said this. The people were saying this. The crowd was muttering this. The crowd was expressing this. In John chapter 8, it's different. It's Jesus and the Pharisees. So what we have in John chapter 8 is this heated, and I mean heated, exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees who were trying to kill him. And some of the things that are said in John chapter 8 are Absolutely stunning. They are amazing statements coming from anybody's lips. Um, that what Jesus says is stunning, and certainly the hostility that you see expressed in the Pharisees is just chilling, chilling the things that they see uh, say. And we're getting into that here in just a second. I told you a couple, well, it wasn't a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple years ago, that if you could get your hands, if you could memorize the seven miracles of John's Gospel and the seven discourses of John's gospel, that you will have a good handle on all of the content of John's gospel. There are seven miracles and there are seven discourses. Now don't make anything out of the number seven. Don't go off into Harold camping land trying to attach some significance to the number seven in numerology and say, well, the end of the world is coming because Jim's halfway through the gospel of John or anything like that. There's no significance that we know of to the number seven. It just so happens that there are seven miracles and there are seven discourses. So if you can keep in your mind where those seven discourses are at, those seven sermons of Jesus, then you kind of have an idea of how the Gospel of John is structured. The first one was the new birth discourse in John chapter 3. That's where Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he explains to Nicodemus what new birth means and what it looks like and who's responsible for it and how it happens. Then in John chapter 4 is the living water discourse. That's the second one, the living water discourse, where Jesus says to the woman at the well, If you knew who asked you for water, you would ask Him, and He would give you living water, and you would never thirst again. That was the living water discourse. The third one was the divine Son discourse of John chapter 5, which we read at the beginning of our service, where Jesus equates Himself, not in person, but in substance, in power and in nature with the Father, and says, if anybody is to honor the Father, he must honor the Son, because when you honor the Son, you honor the Father. and If you dishonor the Son, you dishonor the Father. The fourth discourse was the bread of life discourse, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me and eats, he will never hunger and and he will never thirst again. So the new birth discourse, the living water discourse, the divine son discourse, the bread of life discourse, and now the fifth one is the light of the world discourse in John chapter 8. There are two more, John chapter 10, the good shepherd discourse, and then John chapters, really the end of 12 through chapter 16, which is the upper room discourse. So only two more discourses. After John 8. So you got those five down now? This is now we're starting the fifth of the seven discourses in the Gospel of John. This is called the light of the world discourse because of verse 12. Where Jesus says, I am the light of the world and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And because that's how the discourse begins, it is often referred to as the light of the world discourse. What's interesting is not for the rest of the chapter does Jesus bring up the subject of light or being the light of the world. It doesn't occur for the rest of John chapter 8. That's what sparks it. But then the discourse goes off into all of these other subjects and tangents and theologies and, and themes and it never goes back to the light of the world discourse. If I, if I had my way, and I say this with great fear and trepidation, I would re- rename this discourse the Divine Son Discourse Part 2 because there's so many similarities between chapter 5 and chapter 8. In fact, many of the themes that Jesus begins in chapter 5 with the Pharisees in his divine son discourse, come up again in chapter 8 as he sort of brings them back to the center stage and reiterates some of those themes. His equality with the Father, who he is, what he offers, life and death, heaven and hell, belief and unbelief, honor and dishonor, all of that comes up again in John chapter 8. But for the sake of keeping it straight in your mind so that you remember it, we'll just call it the light of the world discourse. I wanted to come up with an outline for John chapter 8 sort of something real catchy and, and quirky or something that would help you sort of frame everything that's in the 8th chapter. And I found this this book, or this chapter, very difficult to outline. And here's why. The number of themes that come up in John chapter 8, it's, it's very difficult to pin down what would be the central theme. Because the light of the world, though it's mentioned at the beginning, is not really developed all the way through. And it seems as if there are all of these themes that sort of crop up and come to the surface. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody where, you want to take the conversation one particular direction and you're trying to chart the course and keep it on track and you want to always bring back the thing to the the main keep the main point the main point and you you want to keep it there and then the person that you're talking to is constantly arguing or getting you off track and putting you on a tangent this way and that way and you're the one who is always trying to steer it back to the main point that's the way John 8 feels Jesus trying to keep the main point the main point the discussion of who he is and what he offers through John chapter 8 And it seems like every time he takes a breath, the Pharisees jump in with something that bumps them off on a tangent. And Jesus will quickly deal with those issues on the tangent and then try and bring it back to keeping the main thing the main thing. So I was stunned at the number of themes that I see come up in John chapter 8. So what I did this week is I sat down with a piece of paper and I just read through on one reading through, I just listed the number of themes and contrasts that come up in John chapter 8. Let me read to you just the list of themes. And here's why I'm doing this. Because in a second, we're going to read through the entire chapter, well, beginning at verse 12, through the end of the chapter. And I want this list in your mind rumbling around. And then as we read our way through it, I want you to notice how these themes come up again and again all the way through the chapter and how we go from one theme to another. All right? Here's the list. In John chapter 8, we see light contrasted with darkness. We see mention of the Father and the Son, slavery and freedom, truth and lies, God and Satan, "...belief and unbelief, life and death, coming from the Father, going back to the Father, heaven and hell, being from above and being from below, Christ and the world, Christ's people and the world's people, or Satan's people, we see obedience and disobedience contrasted, love and hatred, loving Christ and hating Christ, honor and dishonor, knowing God and not knowing God, being sent by the Father... And the glory that the Son shares with the Father. All of that is mentioned in John chapter 8. So you try and outline that. How do you outline something when all of those themes and contrasts are made? So you have to ask yourself the question, what is the big idea, the central theme of John chapter 8? If we take John chapter 8 and we boil it down to its irreducible minimum, if we try and state the meaning of John chapter 8 and the content there in one sentence, what would it be? And here's what I think it is. This doesn't do justice to everything here, but at least it gives us some headings. The central idea of John chapter 8 is this. Jesus, as the light of the world, offers complete deliverance from the realm of sin to all who believe upon Him. Jesus, as the light of the world, offers complete deliverance from the realm of sin to all who believe upon Him. That, I think, is the central idea of John chapter 8. And then we see this developed in three aspects. So this would be our outline. Jesus offers deliverance from the power of sin. That would be verses 12 through 38. The power of sin. And in that first section, Jesus talks about those who do not believe in Him and so they die in their sin. They die under the domination of sin. It's in that passage where Jesus says, if you believe in the Son, He will set you free. You will become free from sin. Because He who commits sin is a slave to sin. And so all of humanity is under this dominance of sin. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, He sets us free from the realm of sin, particularly, The power of sin, that is its dominance. Then in verses 39 through 47, Jesus offers deliverance from the prince of sin. And in this section, we see Satan contrasted with God. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. And those who are children of the devil do exactly what their father wants them to do and exactly what their father does. And they take their cues from the father, their father. And then there is the children of God and we share the same father as the Lord Jesus Christ, so all those who have believed upon him are delivered from the prince of sin, which is the devil, and transferred into the kingdom and under the dominion of sonship of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That would be the second section. Then there is sort of a third section, and that is that Jesus promises deliverance from the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin is death. And this is where Jesus says, if you believe upon me, you will never taste death. And he says that to the Pharisees. So we have deliverance from the entire realm of sin offered in John 8, particularly from the power of sin which is its dominance the prince of sin which is the devil and the penalty of sin which is death those three things i think sum up all of john chapter 8 now that you've got the outline are you ready to dive in okay so beginning at verse 12 let's see how it is that jesus offers deliverance from the penalty or sorry the power of sin beginning of verse 12 then jesus again spoke to them saying i am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness in the darkness but will have the light of life. That's quite a claim. Verse 13, you notice what the Pharisees do. They don't even actually address Jesus' offer or claim at all. The Pharisees said to him, You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You see, immediately right out of the gate, we're on a tangent, right? He has made a claim on the light of the world, and the Pharisees get him right off track. Well, you're saying this about yourself. And since you're saying this about yourself, how do we know that we can trust you? Anybody can stand up and make their own claim about who they are. You testify this about yourself without any witnesses. Therefore, we can disregard everything that you have said. So Jesus addresses this tangent in verse 14 and tries to bring them back to the central issue which he brought up in verse 12. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus brings up the Father, by the way, which is a theme that we will see traced all the way through chapter 8. There's, a, there's a, this theme of His being sent by the Father is something that comes up, and this issue of the fatherhood of God and who is a son or a child of God comes up later in the chapter. Verse 17, even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Do you notice the implications of that statement? Do you think that people knew of the, the mystery surrounding his birth? Even in his day they did. And this statement, where is your father? And Jesus has spoken of his father. This is their way of sort of bringing up that dirt in a public forum about him. Where is your father? Right? Can you, po- he'd show us somebody somewhere on earth. This is my biological father. Can you point to him? He couldn't, could he? So they dragged that up. Where's your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Remember we saw that in John chapter 7? They tried to seize him, tried to seize him but his hour was not yet. Under the sovereign plan of God, it was not the time for him to be delivered into the hands of sinners and to be crucified. So nobody could seize him because his hour had not yet come. So then we see that theme from 7 transitioning into 8. Verse 21, Then he said again to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now see, here's the question, here's the real issue. This is Jesus getting back to the point. Believe in me, I'm the light of the world, you won't walk in darkness. If you do not believe in me, If you do not trust me, you will die in your sin. And this is the the power of sin. It holds us. And this is Jesus saying, Believe in me and I will deliver you from the dominance of sin so that you will not die in a state of unforgiveness or in a state of sin. Verse 22, So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself since he says where I am going you cannot come. And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. They say, don't, doesn't say I am he. It does, but you notice the he is in italics. It's added there. This is Jesus starting under a theme. Actually, he started this back up in, where was it? Oh, no, it's later. Sorry. This is the beginning of Jesus' theme of being the I am. So he says in verse 24, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. You have to believe something about Him. It's not enough to simply believe in Him. You have to believe something about Him in order to be delivered from your sins. So they were saying to Him, Who are you? By the way, this is the this is really the crux of the issue in chapter 8. They ask Him this twice. Who are you? Verse 25. Verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? That's the issue in John 8. Who are you? Who do you claim to be? So verse 26. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but He who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing of my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Now that's a breath of fresh air, isn't it? Many came to believe in him. That's good news. Remember we're hot on the heels of chapter 7 when they rejected him and the Pharisees hated him at the end of chapter 7 and they wanted to kill him and they were willing to to savagely verbally crucify the officers who refused to arrest him and Nicodemus for suggesting that they give him a fair trial. They were turning on their own. So the hostility and the hatred at the end of chapter 7 is almost off the charts. Now we get halfway through chapter 8 and we finally read these words. Many of them believed in him. That's good news, isn't it? Could it be that we're seeing the beginnings of a revival amongst the Pharisees? Some of those who were hostile to him at the end of chapter 7 now believe on him midway through chapter 8 after they hear him express his claims. It's good news. Are you excited? Do you sense me setting you up for something? Because I certainly am. Look at verse 31. Now watch what Jesus says to those who have believed on him. These are believers. Now watch what Jesus does. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word... Then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They, that is the Jews who had believed on him, said to him, We're Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now see, this was an insult. You are in bondage. If you believe upon me, then you will walk in my truth, and you will know that truth, and that truth will set you free. These are the people who have believed on him, right? Now what is Jesus doing to those who have believed on him he's pushing them a little bit isn't he look at verse 34 jesus answered them truly truly i say to you everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin now that's an insult have you sinned anybody here not sinned? if you have sinned then you are under the dominance as an unregenerate unbeliever you are under the dominion you are a slave of sin you have no will of your own You have no ability outside of sinning. Everything you do is sin. Everything you think is sin. You are a slave of sin, a doulos, a slave to it. You can't do anything other than sin as an unregenerate unbeliever. That was insulting to them. Verse 35: The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. This he is saying to the Jews who had believed in him. Now, what are we to make of this? Verse 30 says that many believed in him. Verse 31 says Jesus is speaking to those who had believed in him. And he says to them, you're seeking to kill me and you're still in bondage to your sin. What kind of belief is it that's mentioned in verse 30 and 31? It's the same kind of belief as the crowd in John chapter 6. You remember the crowd in John chapter 6? They believed in him when they saw the signs. And what did Jesus do in the bread of life discourse to those who had quote unquote believed in him? He pushed them, right? shows them what you call belief, what you say this belief is too shallow. There were a number of Jews who were willing to say, when Jesus would take them to a certain point, yeah, we'll embrace that. And so Jesus would take that and he would say, all right, here's where we're going. And he would push them to reveal that their quote-unquote belief was not saving belief at all. He's saying to those who had believed in him, you're sons of the devil, you are slaves of sin, you're seeking to kill me. This is those who had believed in him. This is not real genuine belief at all. Verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now that introduces us to the second section. First section is 12 through 38. Jesus offers deliverance from the power of sin. That is its dominance, right? We are slaves to sin. We see that. We are in the realm of sin. We are in sin. If we die there, we are, die as slaves of sin. And so Jesus offers deliverance from that slavery. Now, section 2, verses 39 through 47, Jesus promises deliverance from the prince of sin. Look at verse 39. They answered him and said to him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Right? Now, they had claimed that Abraham was their father, and Jesus is totally destroying that notion. If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham would do. What would Abraham do in their situation? Abraham, who possessed true saving faith, would have bowed down to worship him. Abraham would have done that. Abraham would have expressed genuine true faith toward Jesus. But they demonstrate by their hostility to Jesus, by their hatred for him, by their rejection of his word and their rejection of the truth, they're demonstrating their true nature. They are not descendants of Abraham. They are not the spiritual offspring of Abraham. If they truly were like their physical father, Abraham, then they would do exactly what Abraham would do, which is respond with saving faith in Christ. But they didn't do it. And that demonstrates that they are not Abraham's descendants. Verse 41, you're doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. We were not born of fornication. Who do you think that they are implying was born of fornication? The only other person in this conversation, which is Jesus, right? We were not born of fornication. We're not illegitimate, implying you are the illegitimate one. We have a word for that. You are the illegitimate one, not us. We know who our Father is, and our Father is God. Now, they have claimed to be Abraham's descendants, spiritual offspring of Abraham. They're claiming now to be children of God, and Jesus is going to knock both of these right out of the park. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Why could they not hear His word? Did they hear it with their ears? They certainly did. But why could they not respond to it? Because they were still slaves of sin. Because of their nature. Their nature was corrupt, and so they were unable to respond to His word and to hear what it was that He was saying. If they truly were God's children, if they truly did belong to God, then what would have been true of them? They would have honored the Son. Because they would have seen in Jesus the manifestation of the God that they claim to love. So he who loves and honors the Father or the God who is God in truth, when Jesus, who is the manifestation of all of that in bodily form, Jesus could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When the Son showed up, they would have worshiped the Son. And they would have loved the Son and honored the Son and adored the Son, if indeed they honored the Father. Their hatred of the Son is evidence of their hatred of the Father. No man can claim to love the Father or love God and yet hate the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because to dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father who sent Him. And to honor the Son is to honor the Father because the Son is the visible manifestation of all that is God. Everything about the nature and character of God which can be manifested in human flesh was manifested in the flesh in the Son. And when people saw Him and responded to Him with hatred, It was evidence that they really hated God. So God is not their father. Who is their father then? Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And if you think everything else in this thing was insulting. Right? We're Abraham's children. No, you're not. Now, you don't respond like Abraham would respond. You're not his spiritual offspring. Uh, We're God's children. No, you're not. Now, if you were God's children, you would love me. You don't love me. Whose children are you? You're of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. What was the desire of their father? To kill him. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. They were ignorant And they were blind, they were deaf to the truth and could not and would not respond to it because they were children of the devil. They didn't belong to God. If they loved God and belonged to God, when the Son stepped into the world, they would have adored Him. They would have loved Him. They would have embraced Him. But they didn't, and that demonstrates, that shows their true nature, their true character. That they did not have a love for God. They did not have a love for the one true God because they hated His Son. Now that leads us to the third third section, beginning of verse 48. So Jesus as the light of the world offers deliverance from the power of sin, which is its dominance, from the prince of sin, which is the devil, Satan, and now from the penalty of sin, which is death. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, if he's going to call them children of Satan, they are going to come back at him with the absolute worst thing that a Jew could put his lips to. There was nobody on the face of the planet that they hated more than Samaritans. No more despicable group of people in the eyes of the Jews than the Samaritans. So they take a Samaritan they say, what could, what could make a Samaritan even worse than just being a Samaritan? A demon-possessed Samaritan. And that's what they label him with. Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? You are nothing but a... listen to all of the claims so far. This is hard to even roll off my tongue. Illegitimate, half-breed Samaritan possessed of the devil. That is what they have said of Jesus. Just in these few verses. That is almost, that, does that make you cringe? Can you imagine Judgment Day? For these folks who are saying things like this? So Jesus answered verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now that is an astronomical claim. And their response to it shows that they thought only a madman could make such a claim. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? That's the key question, remember? Verse 25, who are you? Now again in verse 53, Whom do you make yourself out to be? If anyone believes in me, he will never taste death. Okay, we've talked about Abraham. Abraham's died. How about the prophets? Has any prophet arisen in the history of the nation of Israel who is not now dead? No, none of them had. All the prophets have died. The father of the nation has died. If we can't put our trust in Abraham and have him deliver us from death, and if none of the prophets were good enough to deliver us from death, then who do you make yourself out to be that you claim to be able to deliver us from death? Who do you? What do you have to say about yourself? Who are you? Tell us who you are. Again, that's the question in verse 53. Verse 54, Jesus answered. Now, He answers their question, but a very roundabout way. Verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham, a physical father, He's talking about there, your father, physical father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, that is Jesus in a very subtle way answering their question. What do you have to say about self? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you, Jesus? Well, he says, I'll tell you who I am. I'm am a son of my father in heaven. You claim he's your God, but he's not. And if I know, if I claim to not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I speak his word. So I am him who was sent by the father. I have come and spoken the words of truth to you. I've been sent by the Father, and I am His Son, and I am worthy of honor, and the Father will glorify me. In other words, I will share glory with this one true God, whom you say is your God. Now, He's answered their question. All they had to do was put two and two together, and they would have come up with this. He is claiming divinity, equality with the Father. Someone who shares the Father's glory as an equal, who has existed always. And now He is an equal, and He is sharing the Father's glory. Look at verse 57. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. This is in response to his statement. Abraham rejoiced to see, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. In other words, Abraham looked forward to being able to see me. Abraham saw me and he was glad. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You know where that comes from? Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, right? When Moses said to God, when I go to the nation of Israel and they say, who has sent you, what am I supposed to tell them? And God said to Abraham, you tell them that I am, that I am, has sent you. Jesus takes the name of God given in Exodus 3, verse 14, and he takes it to himself, which he has already done two other times in this chapter, in very subtle ways. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. When you lift me up, then you will know that I am, that I've come from the Father. And now he says it explicitly. Who do you make yourself out to be? I'm the I am. Before Abraham ever existed, before Abraham ever came into being, I am the eternal I am. That is stunning. That is a stunning statement. People say Jesus never made the claim to be God. Yes, he did. Yes, he just did. He just took the name of God. If he had said, I am Yahweh. If he had said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am Yahweh. Had he said that, it would have been no more clear than what he just said. I am. I have always existed. I am the eternal one. Now, did they respond like Moses and take off their shoes? Because they realized they were on holy ground? Did they do that? No, they didn't take off anything. They actually picked something up. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They wanted to do what they thought was the most rational thing to do to somebody who made a claim like that. They understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. They understood that he was claiming to be the I am. They said, all right, you've claimed to be God. So we're gonna do away with all trials and, and no prosecution, no defense, no opening statements, any arguments, anything like that. Just gonna pick up stones and we're gonna stone you. They went straight to execution. That's what they wanted to do for somebody who would claim to be the ego I mean, the I am of the Old Testament. Incredible. Stunning. Now we have to dip into just for a moment chapter nine for just a second. Before we do, let me let me remind you this, this issue of I am is really the linchpin of the whole chapter. Who am I? Who, who are you? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, finally, the chapters come to a an conclusion, and Jesus has said it, sta- stated it bluntly. Before Abraham ever existed, I am the Eternal One. I've always existed. I was there. Abraham saw me. I am. Okay? Now, that's the linchpin of the whole chapter, because, listen, don't we have to know who Jesus is or who he claims to be before we can place saving faith in him? We do, right? See, if Jesus is the light of the world... If Jesus, as the light of the world, offers deliverance, complete deliverance from the dominion and the realm of sin to all who will trust in him, delivering us from the power of sin, which is its dominance, the prince of sin, which is the devil, and the penalty of sin, which is death, if Jesus offers those three things, then we have to ask ourselves the question, is he able to deliver on all three of those promises? Is he able to do everything that he has claimed that he could do in chapter 8? The answer to that question can only be yes if he is the great I am, because no prophet can do that. No messenger like Moses can do that. No leader like King David could do that. And no father of a nation like Abraham could do that. Only the great I am can deliver us from the power, the prince, and the penalty of sin. Only the great I am can do that. I want to be and I need to be delivered from the power of sin. Because I'm a a slave of sin in my my own unregenerate self. Born into this world, born in iniquity, born conceived in sin, I am a slave of sin. I don't want to die that way. I don't want to die unforgiven. I want to die forgiven. I want to be I want to die liberated from sin, set free from sin. Is Jesus able to deliver us from the pe- the power of sin? Is he able to deliver me from Satan? Look, if Satan wants to keep me, I need some confidence that the one who wants to deliver me can do whatever he wants without the devil being able to keep him from doing it, right? I need some confidence that he can actually deliver me from my father, which is the devil, the prince of sin. And further, I need confidence that he can deliver me from death. What type of a Savior is able to deliver from the power, the power of the Prince and the penalty of sin? Only a Savior who is the great I Am. That's what this chapter is all about. Jesus, as the I Am, as the light of the world, is able to offer deliverance, complete deliverance from the realm and the dominion of sin, from its power, from its Prince, and from its penalty forever to all those who trust upon Him. Now, we gotta dip into verse chapter 9 for just one second, because chapter 9 comes right on the heels of chapter 8. Notice, As he passed by, so verse 59 ends, and the chapter break here is unfortunate. Verse 59 ends with Jesus hiding himself and going out of the temple. And as he passed by, as Jesus walked out of the temple, he sees a man who was blind from birth. So chapter 9 is the next miracle in the Gospel of John. And this happens right on the heels of Jesus um, having this discussion with the Pharisees. He walks out and he sees a man blind from birth. Now listen. Listen. There is no greater illustration of the darkness in which the Pharisees walked and the darkness in which you and I reside as unbelievers than a man who was born in darkness, right? This miracle is the illustration of the sermon in chapter 8. So keep that in mind. Jesus is illustrating the darkness, moral darkness, intellectual darkness, spiritual darkness. We are born that way. We are born slaves of sin. So Jesus is walking out right on the heels of saying, I'm the light of the world and I can deliver you from all of that. Trust me, I'll turn on the light. He passes by a man born blind. And the disciples ask him, Whose fault was it that this man was born blind? Was it his fault or his parents' fault? Look at verse 3. Jesus answers the question. It was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that brackets the whole conversation, doesn't it? It begins with that in chapter 8. It ends with that at the beginning of chapter 9. This issue with the man born blind in chapter 9 is the illustration of Jesus delivering us from darkness. And there is no greater example of what spiritual darkness looks like than a man who was born in darkness. And so Jesus then heals the man in chapter 9 to prove what? I'm the light of the world. right? And those who are born blind in spiritual truth, I can heal them, I can deliver them, I can raise them from the dead, I can turn on the lights for them. But we'll have to save that for the introduction to chapter 9. So now we come to the end of chapter 8. But you know how this works, right? We start over again in chapter 8, verse 12, and we'll sink our teeth in a little bit deeper. There are gems that are to be mined in chapter 8 that are not readily visible to us just on the surface. So we can fly over, we can get an appreciation of what this chapter contains, but now we're going to go back, chapter 8, verse 12. Lord willing, next week, we'll jump in and start mining for some of those truths those gems that are below the surface so let's pray together Our father we do thank you for your word and all that it contains so much more than we can study or reflect upon in any one sitting or even in a lifetime of study thank you for its depth its clarity its convicting power thank you that it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and we ask god that you would fix our affections upon your son through your word give us an appreciation we pray for all that he has done and all that he has said We thank you for a Savior that is able to deliver us from all that he has promised to deliver us from. We thank you for a Savior who is the great I Am, that we can worship you, our great triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and glorify your name with the confidence that our Savior is divine, is God manifest in the flesh to take away the sins of all who will believe upon him. Thank you for such a wonderful deliverance which you have wrought in our hearts. Thank you for opening the eyes of all who are here, who have come to your Son. Thank you for opening our eyes to the truth and bringing us to your Son and delivering us from sin's power, prince, and penalty. Thank you that we never need to fear death because of what Christ has done. It is in his glorious name that we praise you and pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.